Our scripture today comes from Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. It's on your, in your pew Bible on page 472. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and droppings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warmed. In keeping them, in keeping them there is great reward. This is the word of God for the people of God. Speed to God. We're spending a few weeks here on the Bible. Bible 101. Kind of a funny thing to say that because we hope actually that we spend all our weeks on the Bible, right? In the Bible at least. That our whole worship service is focused around the scriptures and prayers and songs and preaching, hopefully the Bible is the foundation of everything that we're doing here. But for a few weeks here in July, we're just taking time to reflect on the Bible, what it is, how we go about using it in our spiritual lives. Now last week, uh, we talked some about how the Bible came to be, and I suggested as a follow-up to the sermon that you take a few minutes to read the Gospel of John. I did that because, honestly, as much as we try to use scripture here from start to end of the worship service, if the only scripture that you ever encounter in your week is when you come to worship, it's just not enough to know the Bible well. We're going to talk more about that next week, but spending time reading the Bible outside of Sunday morning is really the only way to have it dig deep into our hearts. Now, I'm not going to take a poll today to see how many of you read through the Gospel of John last week. This is a place with a lot of grace here, so no judgment. There's always today, if you didn't do it yet, or tomorrow, for you to try that spiritual exercise. If you did read the Gospel of John this week and there was something you found helpful or you found particularly interesting, I would love to hear about it. If you did read through the Gospel of John this week, or if you have ever read through it, the first thing that you will read is a proclamation, a sort of poetic moment about who Jesus is. And that in itself is not surprising because that's the point of the Gospels, right, to tell us who Jesus is. But what is surprising or might be unexpected on first read is what the Gospel of John proclaims about Jesus. It starts by saying, in the beginning was the Word. What? The Word? I thought this was about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, it says. So it kind of sounds like the Word is a person, which is weird. He was with God, and he was God, both at the same time. The scripture says all things came into being through him. Without him, not one thing came into being. So kind of sounds like this is about creation. A paragraph later, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and we've seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. So now this does definitely sound like it's about Jesus, but what's going on? Jesus is the word of God. That's what the gospel proclaims, the word, or in Greek, the logos, which is a kind of complicated term in Greek philosophy, but it means divine reason or wisdom or the plan that kind of undergirds the whole universe. That's who John says Jesus is, the word of God. It's a way to say that he's been there from the very beginning of time, that his essence, his self, his wisdom is part of the entire created world, which is a really big thing to say about Jesus. And we're not going to talk about that anymore in this sermon because we're talking about the Bible. But I just wanted to point out that that's one place that we see this phrase, the word of God in scripture, talking about Jesus. It's an incredibly powerful concept, the word of God. We see it from the very beginning, from Genesis chapter 1. What's the first thing that happens in the Bible? The first thing that happens is God says, God says, let there be light. And there was light. God doesn't just think it. God doesn't just desire it. God says it. God speaks it. It is God's word that is active in creation. God speaks a word, and this thing happens. And that's how the whole creation story goes. God speaks and it comes to be. Another time we see the word of God in the Bible is in the Old Testament. Uh, The prophets, they use it all the time when they share their teachings. They say, thus says the Lord. They claim to be speaking God's word. They understood themselves to be mouthpieces for God. They were delivering God's word to the people who needed to hear it. They shared God's desires, God's will, God's instruction by delivering God's word. Now, why am I talking about all this? Because whenever we read a portion of scripture here in worship, what do we say at the end? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We call the Bible the word of God. We do it each and every week. But what do we mean when we say that? You know, even people who don't know much of anything about the Bible, they know that it's a book that's different than any other book. Even people who never pick it up and read it and couldn't name very many characters in it, they tend to treat it with respect and reverence different from other books. Probably you do too. I have this memory from childhood. I guess it was somewhere around fourth grade. And I was playing with the other kids out on my street and we were in the middle of of devising some kind of big game and I wanted to make sure that we were all in agreement about the rules and that we were gonna all proceed in the same way. And I wanted the kids to promise that we would do it the way we agreed to, but I wanted more than a promise. I wanted them to swear. And I knew from TV that sometimes when things were really serious, people had to swear on the Bible. Because if you put your hand on the Bible and you told a lie, that would be super bad. I didn't know why, I just knew that's how things worked. So I said to my friends, just hang on a minute, and I went into the house intending to grab a Bible so I could make them swear on the Bible. But when I got to my room and I picked up my Bible, that red leather-bound Bible that I had gotten at third grade at church, I froze. And standing there with my Bible in my hands, I all of a sudden got really nervous. I wanted the kids to make a solemn promise 
but I was afraid that if my mother saw me playing a game with my Bible, it would not go well for me. And even if my mother didn't see me, I was worried that somehow I was doing something wrong, that I was cheapening the Bible somehow by using it for a kid's game, that somehow God might be displeased with me for using this most important book in this way. So I stood there for a moment in my bedroom, unsure what to do, and then suddenly I thought of a solution. I threw my Bible on the bed and I ran down the hallway to the piano and I lifted the lid on the bench and I grabbed the trusty United Methodist hymnal. (laughs) And I ran outside and down the driveway to the kids that were waiting and I made each and every one of them put their hand on the hymnal and swear that they were gonna follow the rules just like we'd agreed. In my fourth grade mind, the hymnal wasn't as sacred as the Bible, but it was still a churchy book, so it would work, you understand. A safe substitute. Well, we know, we know from a little age that the Bible is special. We know it's not like other books. But what does it mean to call it the Word of God? Psalm 19 gives us some clues, mostly by telling us what the Bible does in our lives. And and I think it's in seeing what the scripture does that we see most clearly how it is God's word. Listen again to the list of things the psalmist says the scripture does. He says it revives the soul. It brings wisdom. It shows us what is right. It makes our hearts rejoice. It brings clarity. It enlightens us. It lasts forever. It's full of truth and righteousness. It's better than gold, sweeter than the honeycomb. It's full of great reward for the one who studies and lives it. And that's a big promise for one book. But it's a promise on which the Bible has delivered again and again throughout the centuries for people all across the globe. Just think about that list. It tells us that the word of God The commandments, the ordinances, the guidance, the stories of God, they are things that bring us life, which is how we know it comes from God. The Bible gives us comfort. It brings us joy. When we live out its teachings, we find peace. It helps put away our anxiety. It teaches us to trust in God. The Bible sets us on a strong course to have relationships with others that bring life, to help us live in harmony It helps us know our own worth, to find mercy when we need it, to have hope in the future. The psalmist is reminding us that the word of God, the scripture, it's not something to be feared. It's not some rigid and hard and menacing thing. It's not a weight that we carry. It's not drudgery. It's not pain. Rather, the Bible is God's word. It comes from our good and our loving God, and it's a gift It's a gift to us, sweeter than honey, better than gold. God has spoken to us in a personal and a real way, and God wants to use the Bible to shape us, to shape our hearts, to shape our lives. God wants to help us resist the worst impulses inside of us, to set us free from the things that bind us. God wants to save us for abundant life, abundant life now, eternal life forever, And the Bible helps God do all those things. And that's why we call it the Word of God. Now, does that mean God literally wrote it? That God stuck a hand down and put each letter on the page? 
No. No. We believe people wrote it. Inspired by God, but people wrote it. We believe that people edited it. Inspired by God. And that people read it. Inspired by God. And inspiration is required at all those steps along the way for the Bible to do its work. But even though we understand that the Holy Spirit was active in the making and the transmitting and the reading of the Bible, that doesn't mean that it is error-free. Adam Hamilton, pastor at United Methodist Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, suggests what I think is a very United Methodist way to think about the Bible. He suggests that we think about Scripture in three different categories. He calls them buckets, but same thing. And these categories uh, are, are um, yeah, ways that we, when we read Scripture, we can think about which of these categories does the Scripture belong in. In the first one, the first category, are passages that describe God's will for all people in all time. The eternal truths that the Bible teaches us. Like, love your neighbor as yourself. That would be one we'd put in that first category. We find that in both the Old and the New Testament in lots of different places. It's a pretty big theme in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. Or maybe the stories of Jesus we would put in that category, who he was and what he did to save us. God's will for all people, all time. Then there's a second category or a second bucket, and those are passages that define God's will or God's instructions for a specific set of people at a specific time and place. So they reveal God's intention for a particular people, but they don't need to be applied universally across time and space. An example of this would be the instructions we find in Exodus on how to build the tabernacle. Exodus 25, 10 says, They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half shall be its breadth, and a cubit and a half shall be its height. Now we have some good carpenters in this room. Who knows what a cubit is? That's just one of a million verses about how to build the structure, this important structure, the tabernacle. Now, that's Exodus 25. Just a few chapters earlier in Exodus 20, we read the Ten Commandments. Do not steal, it says. That's in the first category, God's will for all time for all people. But this business about how to build the Ark of the Covenant in Exodus 25 or how to make the curtains for the tabernacle, those are not passages that apply to us. We worship God in a very different way. We don't need to know what a cubit is in order to be uh, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. Then there's a third category. Hamilton points out it, and these are, this category is rare in Scripture, but it, these passages do exist. And these are passages that do not represent the will of God. These are moments when the writers, the editors, the compiler of Scripture, whoever, They just, they got it wrong. Now, figuring out which passages go in this category, it's not simple, and it's not something that we do lightly to put scriptures in this category. But for example, when we read about the conquest of the promised land, say in the the book of Joshua, that God commanded the killing of every man, woman, child, every animal, every living thing inside a town or a city, so that the Israelites could come and take over the land, we can say, as faithful people, that doesn't represent the God I know and trust. 
That's not the God of mercy I read about elsewhere in the scriptures. I don't think that reveals the will of God. Now we're going to talk about this category more in two weeks, about when we get the Bible wrong. But to say that there are some things in this category, uh, it doesn't mean that we, that we are taking the Bible any less seriously. What it does mean is we're saying that not every single letter of the Bible is literally and completely true. We're saying we don't take all of the passages with completely equal weight. To call the Bible the Word of God means that we trust reading, studying, memorizing, using the Scripture as our guide. We trust that God will speak to us through the pages of Scripture. God will speak to us, and that's what makes it God's Word. And sometimes the application is direct, and sometimes God speaks to us toward a truth that's even beyond what's on the page. Now, how do we decide what goes in each bucket? Like I said, it's not a simple process. We read, we discuss, we study. We use the other pillars of our faith, tradition and reason and experience to help us sort it out. We pray. We use the other parts of the Bible to interpret the Bible itself. And it is possible that when we do all that, we sometimes come to an understanding about the timeless word of God that is different than other Christian people or other churches. For example, when Paul says that women are to keep silent in church, into which category does that fall? Well, United Methodists have decided that that was location-specific, that it belongs in category number two, that it was about a certain moment in Paul's ministry, and it was not God's will for all times and all people. The United Methodist Church decided that a long time ago, and they made it formal 60 years ago when women were granted full clergy rights. Southern Baptist Church, they still believe that that verse, among others, tells them that women should not be preachers. Which brings me to, you can guess which side I'm on, right? Okay. <laughs> it brings me to one more important thing, though, about calling the Bible the Word of God. That when we understand the Bible as a key way, probably the key way that God speaks to us in the world, it doesn't mean that we can never change our minds about what it means or how we apply it to our lives. I mean, again, back to women preachers. Our dear old Methodist church for many, many decades read scripture in a way that prohibited women from holding key leadership roles in the church. But we changed our mind. That doesn't mean we respect the Bible any less. What it means is that we're willing to wrestle and to learn and to reconsider and to grow. And growing in how we understand the Bible is not a bad thing. It means we know we're human and we're not going to always get it right. And my challenge to you this week, no surprise, read the Bible. This week I want to suggest that you focus in on the Psalms, that together we focus in on the Psalms. They are such beautiful poetry, and throughout the whole book they encompass the full range of human emotions. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this week who's going through a really tough time with one of her kids. And she was sounding really positive to me, telling me all that she was learning and all the ways they were growing. And I said, okay, okay. But what do you do on those moments when you don't feel so hopeful? 
What are you doing in the moments when you just need to be really sad or you need to be really mad? And she said one thing she does is call her sister. Awesome plan. But another thing she does is read the Psalms of Lament. She said it feels really good to know that there are other people who for so long have had the same feelings that she's having. So this week, meditate on the Psalms. Just read a Psalm a day. You're free to pick your own. There's 150 different ones to choose from. Or you can be simple and start with the first Psalm and read Psalm 1 today and Psalm 2 tomorrow and on and on. Or take a look on the church Facebook page and I will share a list of Psalms to meditate on throughout the week. I really believe that the time we spend in scripture will bless us. It will change us. It will mold us. It will help us hear the will of God as we spend time in God's word. Amen.